over 20. We don't know yet. So it's going to be really bad, and I'm leaving. Just when it's going to get really bad for my flock. And that's hard. It's really hard to do. And so I appreciate to the extent to which you can empathize with that, that you'd, you'd pray for the people of our city. So um, one last brief comment is that um, in my time here at High Point, I'm going to be a, like a Bible expositor. We're going to open the passages of the Bible and work through them. But um, every once in a while when we come to something like this, like Mother's Day, um, I will deal with it theologically. I'll deal with the topic. And so uh, last year, as Mother's Day was approaching, I usually don't preach on Mother's Day because I'm, I'm not the touchy-feely one on my staff, you know? And so uh, it sort of came up, and our senior pastor was like, Nick, why don't you do Mother's Day? And I was like, are, are you sure you want me to do Mother's Day? And over the seven years I've been in Linhaven, of course, this, it's been seven years that Lexi and I have existed as parents. And I've watched her kind of fiddle with this whole motherhood thing and watched all these women in our generation really, really struggle with being mothers and recognizing that they're supposed to be thrilled about it, but finding out that they're having a lot of trouble with it. I decided to write a sermon on motherhood. And um, the title came out to be The Difficulty and Disappearance of Motherhood. So let me read a little passage for you from Psalm 127, and let's just let's go to work, okay? This is Psalm 127, verses 1 to 5. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gates. So here's a two-sentence exegesis of that psalm, which is all about God and family, right? That's the whole psalm, five verses, which essentially says, listen, if you're blessed in any way, it's because God has blessed you. It works hard as you like. If God doesn't bless your work, it's not really going to amount to much. And then he keys in onto what everybody in that context understood as to be one of the greatest blessings you could receive, and that is a family, particularly one with children. Right? That's what it says. Let me see if I can make this work. The answer is no. Here we go. Yeah. It's my fault. Um, okay. Here's, here's the, tr the traditional myth that we, um, if, if you guys can override my failure of control here, I, just put me to the slide two there. Um, the overall, over, there we go, overarching myth that we receive as American peoples, um, and especially as Christians, is that motherhood and having children is a very good thing. Having children is a very good thing. And um, it's assumed that if we have children, our, we're going to be blessed and happy and thrilled, and we're going to spring out of bed in the morning, and we're going to, everything's going to be fantastic ad nauseum. You know, that's sort of the idea. Um, and you see, if that was true, we would expect everybody would be just jonesing to get in on motherhood. Okay? Right? You'd be like, if, if everybody believed that, 
right? Then everybody would just be making babies, right? I mean, it, I mean, Middleton would be even full, more full of breeders. I mean, it would just be everywhere, everywhere you go, it, there'd be babies. And, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's like anything economically, right? Anything economically where the profit margin is really high, who's getting in? Everybody who can, right? And you'd think, well, if motherhood is the highest profit margin in terms of happiness, who's going to be getting in? Everybody who can. But what's, ha what's actually happening? In reality, sociologically speaking, in the West, motherhood is disappearing. That's what's actually happening by any meaningful measure. So, for example, here are some of the birth rates in the West. So you need, if you're an industrialized country and you have super great health care and um, you have so many laws about safety that your kids are essentially wrapped in bubble wrap throughout their youth, then a 2.1 birth rate will keep your population stable. Your economy will still collapse in 40 years, but you'll have the same number of people when it does. Okay? Now, so, and, but here are the birth rates in the industrialized world. Well below what's necessary. A lot of these countries on their present rate, unless they increase their immigration dramatically, right, they're going to have about half the people they've got right now in about 70 years. Right? And industrialized economies are all designed for increasing populations, right? It's a little bit of a problem. In fact, there are a number of economists that have said that the, house, the housing collapse and the economic issues that we're having didn't start with the bankers finagling with things. It actually started with a decrease in population and an older generation with lots of money they wanted to invest and not a sufficient number of younger generation workers growing up in order to invest in. So they needed more investments and so they needed shenanigan investments because they had invested in all the good investments. Supply and demand. Now, the, now the United States, I think, is 2.1. So that is 0.8% growth, less than 1% growth. Okay? And there's a couple countries like Israel's 2.7, India is 2.7. Okay? So the reality is that by any measure, any normal measure, Motherhood is disappearing in the West, in the industrialized world. The question then is, why? Why would that be if everybody knows having kids makes you happier? Right? Um, now, uh, you'll be happy to know that there have been several studies done on the relationship between having children and happiness. Aren't you happy to know that? Yeah. And generally what the studies find is this, is that marriage increases a person's overall happiness, generally speaking. That marriage increases a person's overall happiness, but having children decreases a person's overall happiness, sometimes dramatically. <laughs> so is there, I have a laser on here. Okay, can you see my laser? Okay, so the way this graph is set up, this is funny, isn't it? But wait for the jokes, okay? So, so, I work hard on this. Okay, so this is when you get married. Married without children. The happiness level, these people were particularly happy. It's up here, okay? Now, then, here's childbearing, right? And this, here's what, this is what we call the preschool slump, okay? These people particularly depressed, okay? And then, and then everybody apparently agrees that between 5 and 12, your kids get interesting. 
Right? Yes? Okay. And then, what's this? Yeah. These people who were real, these were the partiers, and they had the partier kids, apparently, is what happened there. And then, and then your kids become adults and hopefully leave the house. See, first child gone to last leaving home. Ooh, we're getting rid of them. Yeah, there's a car accident here and there. Insurance rates are high, but off they go. And then the golden year, people are the happiest. The empty nesters, okay? That's what it says. Now, the, these, these are the four major studies out there. Now, there are a couple of other studies out there that disagree with this, slightly, right? There, there's one study from the University of Pennsylvania that says that having one child will make a woman happier, and if that one child is a boy, it will make the husband happier, but when you have more than one child, it then reverses, the, it makes you less happy than if you were just married with no kids. So, happy are the parents who have one boy child. <laughs> which, which is funny, it is funny, but, but go, take a trip to India or China and open the newspaper and read the stories lamenting gender-selective abortion in both of those countries. It's an epidemic, why? They feel the same way we do, but they're just more pragmatic about it, right? I mean, it is funny, but, but in other places in the world, I mean, these, these things have consequences, right, in people's actions. So, all right, so that's kind of how that plays out. Now, here's what else I know as a pastor. That there are a lot of women who are Christians who have chosen to be mothers, and even Christian women who have chosen to be mothers who have good and positive sentiments about motherhood still actually find themselves feeling bored, anxious, unfulfilled, and often resent, resentful as mothers. And what I'm finding is the younger the woman, the more likely that is. Because here's what we're finding. What we're finding is a whole generation of people my age and younger know that having kids might make you happy, but consuming other things that you can't afford if you have kids makes you happier. That's what they really believe. And so therefore, that's what they're doing. And because they're doing that, motherhood is disappearing. And we are looking at birth rate numbers that means that for all intents and purposes, the industrialized world, Japanese and white people are going extinct because we have chosen to, because we like things. Now, and although depression is, a, is serious, and postpartum depression, my understanding, is undertreated, there's one woman in my church that told me she went to a um, young mom's small group. Okay, these are all women between 40 and 30 who have little kids and drive around large vehicles. And what, here's what... Here's what came out in their small group. Seven women. Number of women on at least one antidepressant? Seven. Seven. And my, what I found is, in my church, with our Christian sentiments against prescriptions, that's normal. I talked to one of our psychiatrists about this, and she said, this is a loose quote, 
Although antidepressants can be helpful in the short run, if the problem is that a woman feels unfulfilled about motherhood, antidepressants aren't going to fix her problem or help her over time. Something else is needed. Right? So here's the question. What do we do with all this? What do we, and when I say we, I mean specifically the church. I mean specifically those of us who believe that Jesus is the risen living Lord and who has inscripturated through the Spirit his direction for us in the Bible and enlivens that inscripturated teaching through the Spirit in the church. What do we do about this? Okay? So I want to try to answer three questions in a little while because you have to go to a restaurant. The first is... (laughs) Sorry. It's fun using all the same jokes and seeing which ones are still funny here. (laughs) One is, what does Scripture say, what does Scripture actually say about children, parenting, and mothering? Two, what accounts for this feeling about motherhood? And three, how do we learn to find motherhood, parenting, and domesticity fulfilling again? Are you interested? Okay, so one. What does Scripture say about children, parenting, and mothering? Anybody who has read Scripture on this ought to be able to tell that Scripture has a very positive view about children and parenting. A very positive view about children and parenting. Now, one of the things that we need to be careful about is the Bible doesn't very well like the concept of happiness, okay? We're going to have to deal with that, church. We're going to have to deal with that. that. When you go to the Bible and you look for happiness language, it's there. Okay? People talk about being happy. For example, in the Psalms, they'll express that they're experiencing being happy. But when, when the way we ought to be is talked about, or when God does something good to us, the language of blessing is used. And those aren't the same thing. Happiness is an internal psychological state. It's completely subjective. Right? You can have two people in the exact same situation. One might be happy, one might not be happy. Right? I was just, you know, up to my ankles in raw sewage last week playing cricket with little kids who were really happy. Right? And, you know, you know you have surly teenagers that have everything, including a car, and they find some way to be, like, dramatized by life. Okay? Happiness is very situational. And see, in the Bible, blessing is relatively objective. When things are good and you are blessed, this is true. And if you're not happy when you're blessed, that means there's something wrong with, this is participatory, you, right? <laughs> something wrong with you. If, I mean, the Bible doesn't very well like the idea of you whining, right? It's basically like, okay, there's blessing, there's cursing. If you're blessed and you're not happy, there's probably something dramatically wrong with your perspective. So when the Bible says having children, parenting, having a domestic life, that that is good, it doesn't say, and it will make you happy. No, that's contingent on you. It, it, does, it says it is a blessing. That when God gives it, it's a blessing. Does that mean, therefore, then, that you're entitled to it? That your uterus must work or God is evil? Is that what that means? No. No, it's... A, Blessing is something God sometimes gives, God sometimes doesn't, even if, the, even if you earned it more. I mean, how many of us know women who would make amazing mothers, much better mothers than us or some people we know that are mothers, and they're infertile? 
they can't make their own babies, right? Blessing is not, blessing or reward is not based on how much you have earned. Blessing often attends on faithfulness, right? So you can position yourself for in the kind of life that God often blesses, but there is no math to it. Where if I do this, God therefore must do this. That's not how it works. God promises to often bless in certain ways certain kinds of faithful living, but he doesn't always promise exactly how or how much other than eternal life. But when we go to Scripture, Scripture is constantly saying that the status of parenthood or mothering or having children is blessed. That is always a blessing. Even though all of the children we receive as blessing are imperfect children. Psalm 127, sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Sorry, I should be doing the slide thing since I made them, right? What does the scripture say about mothering? Proverbs 17, 6. Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents the pride of their children. You know, right? You read that, you go, so far have we departed from this idea that neither clause makes sense to us. Right? What that, what that says is not just parents, children are a blessing. What does it also say? Children, parents are a blessing. Right? Now, most kids will pick up on this when they're about 24. Okay? Between 19 and 36 is usually when that dawns on children that if you weren't horrifyingly abusive, that you were a blessing to them. But that's what it says. And then in Isaiah 65, 23, um, when in the Old Testament there is a picture of God's blessing, usually a, a blessed situation is one in which there is good work and there is a fertile family. There is a family in which to enjoy the fruits of good work. There is a wholeness to the life that happens. So here's an example. That in a blessed situation, they, these blessed people, will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. Right? They will not work for nothing. And they will not bear children in a situation that it would be better not to have children. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Now, on top of that, do you remember what the creation mandate is in Genesis 1? God makes people, and he tells them to do something, right? Remember this? He, sa he says, subdue the earth, right? And what else? Populate it, right? Subdue and populate it. Work and have children, right? And then as you move through the early chapters of Genesis, what's the drama? The drama is often they're doing the work, but they can't have the children, right? The first two patriarch wives are barren women, right? They're infertile. And so God's blessing, how is God going to fulfill this? The whole drama is wrapped around, can they have children? Can the promise be passed on? Will these people be blessed? Will they have children's children, right? That's the, the whole drama. And there are certain passages in Scripture that when we recognize what motherhood is, they make sense when they, even though they really offend us. So are you familiar with the, um, are you familiar with the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2? 
that says, um, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, right? And then a few verses, if that doesn't make you mad enough, right? A few verses later it says, um, the woman will be saved through childbearing, right? Number, for me, that's number one most embarrassing passage in the Bible, okay? Now, I, be- I totally believe it. Like, I mean, I believe it's inspired by God. But when I, but, I mean, if you say, what passage would you least want to read um, publicly in downtown Madison on a microphone? That would be, like, right up there. Like, top three, okay? But, now think about this. Part of the reason for this is we have essentially forgotten the uniqueness of childbearing as the, as the province of women, okay? And here's, here's why. Because the way women were soci- sociologically, uh, I don't want to say abused, but the way, the way things were kind of overcompensated towards patriarchalism was that that's all women were, right? That for, you know, there's this myth that that was the only province of women. And we've so recovered from that idea that now it's almost like it's not one. Women are now so just like men in the area of work that in the area of population, who knows what that means. Whereas, listen, bearing and having children is the sole and only province of women. If women do not have children, we go extinct. Period. Full stop. That's it. There is no one else who can take that job. It is only theirs. And so if you go, okay, wait, so wait. If the position of elder is just for some men, what keeps women from having sort of a second-class place in the culture, and so- culture of the church? Well, there is, an, there is an office in province in human culture and society that is only theirs. I mean, if God is sexist to make men elders, God is also sexist to make women mothers. Because I can't be a mother. Now, I'm not particularly angry about that. But I can't be a mother. But you see, motherhood has become this throwaway category. Like if you say, okay, let's tally what we get by genders, and you go, well, women get motherhood, women are like, oh. It's like getting the kid in kickball who can't throw her kick, you know? That's how we feel about it. But that's not, I mean, see, that's not how the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about it as though it is an amazing province that belongs only to women, that only they can bear, that only they can embody, that only they can fulfill completely, that, that cannot belong to anybody else. And it is not the second thought, bottom category of the things within the province of women. It is in the first tier of things in the province of women. Okay, more on that, but we're sort of out of time on that. So let's move on to the second bit. What accounts for... Oh, I'm supposed to aim at that thing. What accounts for the increased strain on motherhood, right? If the attitude is motherhood stinks, okay? Um, what accounts for that attitude? And what I would say is there are an, motherhood is already hard enough, okay? It's just hard enough to be sleep deprived and nurse and all of that, okay? That's hard enough. But what I would want to say is in, industri- in the industrialized world, there are a number of increasing strains on motherhood that make the idea of becoming a mother sound even worse. Okay? Now, when I worked on this in my office, <laughs> this is what that looked like, okay? There were like 35 things. So I'm going to narrow this down to four, okay? If you want a copy of that, just email me and I'll send it to you. 
Okay, wait, not that yet, so black screen. Okay, just look at that for a minute since you can't read it. Okay. Um, as Christians, we're supposed to have this high view of motherhood and parenting and children. So the question is, um, are, is, is motherhood, is the idea of having children the problem, or is something else the problem, right? So what evidence might there be that the problem isn't women and children, but the, the question is something cultural? Well, here's a possibility. Okay, this was, they replicated this study done on American women in France to see if women in France dislike being mothers as much as American women. And here's what they found. Women in France are not quite as unhappy when they are interacting with their children as women in the United States. We could imagine in some cultures it's not true at all. The differences aren't genetic differences, they're cultural differences, right? So when they replicated it in France, the French women weren't. Is, are the French better than us? No. No. <clears throat> um, the difference is, is there, are, there are at least, there are a number of strains of motherhood. Here's four. Um, one is increased family work. Okay, now, um, some time ago, in the 1960s, now remember, in 1960, we were globally known as the affluent society. Now, we're a factor of four richer now than we were in 1960, when we were called the affluent society. So I don't know what you would call us now, but that's what we were called. Now, in 1960, the average adult work week in a home of a married family was, was 49 hours. The average man worked, no kidding, a 40-hour work week. And the average woman, if she worked, she tended to be college educated if she worked, um, was nine hours. So the average parental work week was 49 hours. In 2008, the average guy doesn't work 40 hours anymore. He works 46. And the average woman works 27. That's, of course, a three-fold increase in the amount women work. And the average parental work week in America is now 73 hours. Right? We're getting very much busier. Now, you've got to ask the question why this is, because in 1960, what pharmaceutical was invented and unleashed upon the American public? The pill, right? So immediately, American family size decreased. OK, so wait a second. If family size decreased, and everybody knows kids cost an ungodly amount of money, um, what gives? Because you should be able to work less and be more affluent if you have less children, right? So why, are we, why did our work week jump from 49 hours to 73 hours? Well, because between 1960 and 2007, we decided to spend a lot more money on ourselves. The average American in 1960... Now, okay, now, these dollars are norms, so don't give me the inflation argument. Oh, it's, no, it's not. These numbers are normed to 1992 dollars, okay? So, normed to 1992 dollars, in 1960, the average American spent $7,000 on consumables in the course of a year, okay? Not $7,000 on themselves, but $7,000 on consumables. In 2008, the average American adult spent $17,000 on themselves in the course of a year. Here's what happened. We decided to buy stuff instead of have children. But for those of us who have children, who are still trying to buy this much stuff for ourselves, and therefore then are working these work weeks, what does that do with our, the number of domestic hours we have in our waking days? It cuts them dramatically. And so, is it rocket science that we would feel stressed? No. 
No. And if we approximate our neighbor's lives at all, I'm not talking about keeping up with them. I mean just approximating them generally. It's going to drop on us the necessity of a certain work week that we cannot bear if we're also trying to do something else. Now, here's the second one. Prolonged culture of independence. When I talked to the psychiatrist I was wrapping this out with, she thought this was the most important. Now, think about this. If you go back years, years, um, the average American would graduate from high school somewhere in the neighborhood of 17, 18, right? Oftentimes they'd go to work or they might go to college, but oftentimes they get married right out of college. A lot of people got married right out of high school, right? And a lot of American kids actually had responsibilities. This is something that, I, this is like mythology to most of you who are under 25, but it used to be that when people grew up, they, they often had these things, um, now this is going to sound like a foreign language, called chores. Chores. And it's the only, yeah. Okay, and they were little jobs you had to do because you were part of the family too, right? And so on. So, um, and oftentimes, kids, 14, 15, 16, they'd get jobs, right? And so the period of time between you being an in interdependent youth to being an interdependent married person to having a dependent of your own was three years, six, five years, six years maybe, right? And so the period of time in which you were functionally absolutely independent, answer to nobody, and defined happiness completely for yourself was fairly short. Okay? See, that's not true anymore. It's not true anymore. See, now, kids basically do whatever they want by age 16 or so. Their lives are completely them. They play sports, they go here, they hang out with their friends, they get on the internet, they do whatever they want, all their bills are paid, everything's taken care of, but they are functionally independent psychologically, 16, 17, right? And then, when do people get married? <clears throat> Well, in the secular north, people get married 27, 28 is the average age now. Now, for women, it's slightly younger, but it's still like 25, right? And pe do people have their first baby right away? No. No, they put that off another two, three, four years, depending on how many PhDs they're going to get. So what that ends up meaning is, what is now the functional time of independence between when you are functionally independent and when you have a dependent? It's like six-eighths of your adulthood. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's more than a decade. So what happens is, this is true for both men and women, but you, you take a young woman, she's 16, she basically can control, like there's no screaming kids around her, she puts in her iPods, she controls her environment, she does what she wants, she has spending money, she gets a job, she's financially independent, she goes out when she wants, she has sex when she wants, she marries who she wants, she does whatever she wants, and then all of a sudden, She's a domestic person who has babies, who scream, who wake her up, who inconvenience her in a thousand different ways. Right? And oftentimes her husband is not a full co-sharer of the burden. Right? See, back in the day when that was a two or three year gap, you could still expect a young woman to have the emotional furniture of domesticity. You can't now. We spend the entire life of women making them psychologically male, and then one day, they're supposed to be women. I mean, think about, think, here's how you can know if you're, how you're raising your daughter. Are, are you raising your daughter for her career? 
right? If your daughter came over to my house and I said, here's a credit card, we'll drive you to the store, you can buy whatever you want, you're going to cook a meal for six people tonight. And it's going to be good. <laughs> right? I mean, can she even do her own laundry? Right? I mean, the, the, the answer for a lot of people, I mean, I remember Lexi and I got married, and she was like, whew, glad there's the internet. You know what I mean? She, she, she was like, let's try some kind of meal. Right? And it's, it's not because she had bad parents. She had fantastic, my wife had fantastic parents who were hippies, who raised her to be a liberated woman so that she was a fantastic lab tech at Abbott Laboratories. She was an amazing lab tech at Abbott Laboratories. And she got married and she didn't know how to cook a potato. Okay? She would say that. We had this, we had this story. You want to hear a funny story? It's really short. We were, um, we were having dinner one night, and so I'm studying and doing my Hebrew paper. And Lexi comes in, she's going to make dinner, right? And so she, um, she goes to the kitchen, she, like, I can hear stuff moving. And then she comes back and she sets this plate next to me. And um, on the plate, this is dinner, is um, a leaf of lettuce with a clump, <laughs> a clump of tuna fish in the middle of it, unseasoned not cut with any kind of mayonnaise-ish type thing, right? I think there might have been a little pepper on the top, you know? And I looked over at her, and she's sitting at, the, at our like, little table. We had like a one-bedroom apartment. She's sitting, and she's taking her first bite out of a ham sandwich. And I just said, baby, I'm a grown man. I don't have to eat this. And that's just... But that's where we were, right? And now she's a great cook now, but she had to learn it after she got married because she wasn't raised to be a domestic person. She was raised to be a hippie career woman. Now, that, look, that's not bad. There are a lot of fantastic things about raising women to be competitive and strong and strong-minded because how, what percentage of us idiot men are going to drop them and be bad husbands and divorce them? Like half of us. So the women have to be tough, Right? So it's good we raise women like that. I mean, it'd be good if they could make a casserole too. <laughs> but look, we, but right, I mean, we have, like, I'm raising my daughter to be tough. I'm like, baby, you got to play contact sports. And we, why? Because she's going to go out into a tough, uncivilized, civilized world. But it should not surprise us if we raise our, our women to be undomestic. If the day in which the baby drops out of the uterus, they don't, know, they don't have the emotional furniture to feel good about being domestic. Because here's the fourth big problem, or the third, is the abrupt transition. I mean, listen, friends, moms do not get the baby one or two days a week for several months before they have a baby on their hands, okay? I mean, one minute, it's in the uterus. The next minute, you're trying to figure out how to nurse a little pink bag of helplessness. I mean, it's that fast. It's that fast. I mean, I remember Lexi, um, when we had our first child, Abigail, she was sitting at her desk at laborator Abbott Laboratories typing out a report. She went into labor. We went to the hospital, and, you know, 25 hours later, she's a full-time mom with a little baby, and pff, we don't know squat about this thing. All we've got is that little doorstop book that's like 1,000 pages. You know, that's it. Right? So, so if, a, if a woman spends more than a decade cultivating a nature of absolute independence and then the transition to a radically different life that includes absolute dependence is 
immediate, what do you think the effect on her psychologically is going to be? Right? And then, adding to that is very unreasonable and unhelpful stands of parental care. Now, here's what I mean by that. I am not talking about silly parenting models. Okay? And friends, silly parenting models abound. They abound. Okay? Let me just, let me just lay that out there. But even if you don't have a silly parenting model, even if you have a good parenting model, still, the proneness to neurotic insanity is very high. Now, let me tell you why I think that is. Take, so if a woman gets married, right? So she's, a, she's already a wife. That's supposed to mean something. Wife is supposed to mean something. Now, in addition to wife is mother, okay? And if you take wife and mother and you put it together, you have the domestic life which is either a portion of a working woman's life or all of a fully domestic woman's life, okay? Now, now think about this. Take a hypothetical woman. Her name's, let's say her name's Annie. She's 21. You know, she, she went to undergrad, and then you know, at 22 she gets a master's in, in biotechnical whatever, and she's working in a lab, okay? Now, Annie's smart, right? She does her job really well. She creates this report that goes out to about 50 people. So what's the nature of her job? She does one task. She's really good at it. She has closure constantly because she finishes reports and sends them out. And her work is acknowledged as excellent. And she gets appreciation from 40 or 50 different people who all receive her work. So she's getting affirmation. She's good. She's got closure. There's bookends around things. That's the world she lives in. Okay. Now, boom, has a baby. Now, what has just happened to that equation? Okay, now how many things does she do? Not one. <laughs> she does like 40 different things, right? She does 40 different things, and is she good at any of them? No. Yeah, she might be good at one of them, okay? But she's not immediately good at laundry. She's not immediately good at cooking. She's not immediately good at diapers. She's not immediately good at getting the kid to nap. She's not immediately good at negotiating with a two-year-old. She's not immediately good at any of these things, and she knows it. Because she's smart. She's got a master's degree. She knows what excellence looks like because she accomplished excellence when she did one thing. And so her husband doesn't even need to complain. He doesn't even need to complain because she knows she's not accomplishing excellence at dinner time or at laundry time or at house clean time or at dusting time or at anything time. She knows she is not achieving what she was achieving in terms of excellence. And now, what has happened to the legion of 40 people who appreciate her? <laughs> I mean, basically, she's got a couple of sacks and nothing that do nothing but not appreciate her and a husband who's wondering why he can't have sex with her anymore. I mean, that's what she's got. Right? And once a year, we buy a card. <laughs> Is that enough on that one? Okay. And listen, friends, all of this stuff and the 30 other things are just added strains on motherhood. Motherhood was never particularly easy. And these are all added strains. Listen, friends, to take care of this by some other means, I mean, it's a, it, it would take a lethal dose of Valium to make this better, okay? So, point number three is, okay, how do we recover then 
a fulfilling domestic life. How does that happen? Okay, I, I didn't want to set a precedent for preaching too long, my second sermon here at High Point, but let's, this is the important part. So just hang with me for a couple more minutes, okay? Um, here's a, here, I want to give you a number of things, and I'm going to linger just for a minute on the last one, okay? So here they are. Oh, whoop, too far. Okay, no, wait. There it is, okay. The first is, um, this is for men, okay? We need to um, appreciate our wives in a more disciplined way, okay? This is not, don't sound clap. You know, appreciating mom every once in a while is not, that's not cool, okay? Appreciating mom in a constant, disciplined way and teaching our children to do so is an extremely important discipline. If we do not do it, our daughters will marry the wrong men and our boys will not know how to be good husbands, okay? And we will be stinky husbands. You cannot make up for this on Mother's Day. You, let me repeat this. You cannot make up for this. So, and so you, you model this. So you sit down at dinner, right? And what do you say? You say, kids, man, I, don't know if you know, I don't know if you know this. You can't get food like this at a restaurant. <laughs> you can't. You can go out there. You can try. You can't get food like this at a restaurant. And we're going to sit down here tomorrow night. Well, it's going to be totally different. It's going to be amazing, right? And, you know, one of your kids are like, well, I don't like that. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, well, my kids do that. Your kids don't. But, you know, what do you do with that? You don't say, you don't say if you're a dad, you don't say, don't talk to your mother that way. It's <laughs> not what you do. You, you, you help the child understand how and why what they said is radically selfish and unappreciative. Of, you say, I'm sorry, sweetie, did you, did you stop everything you wanted to do at 4 o'clock today so that you could prepare this meal? Have you just spent the last hour and a half chopping, cutting, preparing? Were, were you thinking on Tuesday of last week what we were going to have today for lunch, did you cut out coupons and figure out what store to go to so that you could save 4% on this item to fit it within our budget so there could be hot artesian bread with the crockpot dish tonight within the budget right now. Boom! <laughs> did you do that? You did not do that. Right? And you only have to do that a couple times and they start doing it to each other. Right? <laughs> But we have got to be, we men, have got to demonstrate what it means to be loving, right? Okay, so that's the first one. The second is, for, this is for the moms and the husbands, but mostly for the moms. Sweethearts, you all need to lower your expectations of what you can accomplish in 24 hours. Okay, look. look. <laughs> the kids, if they have a little bit of dirt right there, that's okay. All right? You know, there was a day when, where people bathed annually, okay? You didn't understand that. That was a time that really happened, okay? And, you know, if dinner isn't, like, fantastic every night, it, listen, if dinner isn't even well-balanced every night, it's okay, all right? Your kid is not going to die of scurvy if one night you have ham and pasta. Okay, just lower your, listen, you need to lower your expectations. You are doing 50 things, not one thing. When you were at work full-time, or 20 minutes ago if you were at work, you did five things and you did them awesome. Now you're doing 50 things and what's the time left over from work if you're a working mom, or if you're a full-time mom, you're still doing 50 things. 
you're going to do them all a factor of 10 worse. It's just simple math, okay? So relax. Who cares? Your kids are fine, okay? All right, third, do less and slow down, okay? Now, here's, one other, here's, here's, where, here's where that's come from. Here. All right, this is from another one of those studies. And the question was, um, all right, so if w women don't like being moms, if we freed up more time for them to be moms, they'll be less happy, right? Here's what they found. If children really were the source of parental agony, love that adjective, then the more time you spent with them, the worse you would feel. But it turns out that people who have a little more time to spend with their kids are happier with them, which once again points to the problem being not the children themselves, but the life conflicts. It is not children that make us unhappy. Rather, we are unhappy because we are doing too much, right? Why is it aggravating to pick your kid up from school? It's not just because they're five. It's because you can't slow down to let them be five. That's the problem. See, if you double park and you run and grab the kid and throw them in the seat and you, you know, and you're like, put on, buckle yourself, let's go, we're going to go, we got to go. And they're like, ah! Like, I'm gonna, uh, and, <laughs> right? I mean, you created that situation, right? And listen, and so, and what, what do we do? Okay, so we're these like suburban, educated people. We live out in the suburbs, and, and so what do we do? Okay, our vice is not, our vice is not neglecting our children. Okay, I mean, maybe emotionally, but like, the, our ch our children's problem is not that they are under nurtured. Okay, that's not our kids' problem. Okay? Our children are nurtured to the point of psychotic neurosis. Okay? Like, I mean, I mean, we have the parents who are like, okay, they're only playing four sports, baby. I don't know if they're going to be able to compete in the global world! <laughs> right? That's us. Listen, we need to slow the heck down. Woo! Because what happens if we're like on the road and get, guess what kind of kids are going to, kids are going to grow up to be? Crazy neurotic people! Right? I mean, if we want kids that can relax, guess what we're going to have to be able to do? Right? If we want our kids to read the Bible and discuss it with their family, we can't be like, now, we're on the way to gymnastics for the ninth time this week, but when you get married and you're super nurtured and you finally have enough money that you can survive, SUV, then slow down and talk to your kids and read the Bible over. I mean, your kids are going to be like you, not like what you tell them to be, right? Every study on parenting says that. So, if we want kids who like, can relax and slow down and not freak out if they're not doing something every second, we will have to nurture them that way. So we have to slow down and do less. Okay. Is the hook anywhere? Where's the hook? Okay. Fourth, younger moms need to seek out an emotional mentor. Okay? All I'll say about this is, listen, she's here. Your emotional mentor is here. She just doesn't think you want to hear from her. She's not going to invite herself to meddle in your life. So if you're a mom between 25 and 35 or 40, and I really could use um, the insight and wisdom of a mom at least one life stage ahead of you, then you are going to need to approach them because we live in the get as offended as fast as you possibly can society, right? So nobody's going to come to you and say, well, I noticed that your kids are dramatically unruly. I was thinking... <laughs> Perhaps I could shed some insight on your lack of parenting prowess. I mean, that's just not going to happen, right? I mean, you're going to have to ask for it, 
And uh, that's humbling, but the Bible says good things about hu humility, right? Number five, conscious transition for women. Um, for those of you who are transitioning into motherhood or before you're... Listen, if you don't transition conscientiously, you're going to be hit passively by all those things I talked about. You have to psychologically prepare yourself for motherhood to be happy in motherhood. It is too intense an experience to go into without any mental training. You have to have a theology of motherhood, a sense of motherhood, a realistic idea of what it's really going to be like, and some things like that already in place. Because when that little pink sack just erupts onto your private life, if you're not ready for it, you will find what you thought was going to be a very fulfilling experience to not be one. And it, it'll, there's all kinds of blow up on that. Six is rediscuss work family choices. Part of this is some people said, some moms said, okay, when we have the baby, I'm not going to work. I'm going to stay home. You're going to work, and, we're gonna do, and that's what you've been doing for five years, and she's going crazy. Or it's the vice versa. You decided that she decided she was going to go back, and then you, you decided that like five years ago, and you haven't talked about it since. Those kinds of decisions need to be re... It's like a one-year appointment, okay? They need to be like re-upped constantly because, here's the thing, a parenting a one-year-old is not the same thing as parenting a one- and a three-year-old. A seven-, five-, and two-year-old isn't the same thing as a five-, three-, one-year-old. These are all different life stages. And assuming that a woman interacts with all of them the same and therefore the structural decisions you made in your family still work may just be leading to a resentful wife who hates your guts. <laughs> right? Or a husband who feels that you are resenting him and hates you back. And so if you want it, this to, you've got to talk to each other and re-up these things like annually or more frequently than that. You have to renegotiate them. Okay? This is important. Okay, and then lastly, and this is the most important one, and you, you may think it's the dumbest one now, but if you bought into it, in a year or two, you would find your emotional world about it starting to change. And that is, we have to just plain old, straight up, redignify motherhood all year. We have to begin to see the domestic life, the life of hearth and home, as not only dignified, but absolutely divinely sacred. Seeing something as sacred is deeper than seeing it as important or respectable. Seeing something as sacred is that God's divine life attends on the thing itself in such a way that it is bigger and greater than you could ever see with your eyes. And you know that by promise of faith, that God has said it, and we believe it, and therefore we begin to see it. You, be, you will begin to have a magic feeling erupt within your emotions when your wife pulls brownies out of the oven and the fragrance fills the room. You won't just run by it anymore. Right now you just run by it. But you'll go, she made those out of love for us. She cares about this home. You'll begin to see, um, you know what Chesterton used to say about democracies? Chesterton, there's no such thing as a democracy. There's only a governmental democracy over a thousand dictatorships. Men can be parts of democracies. Women have always been emperors. Their kingdoms are just smaller. And if, if we can build this creative mind in our wives and in our husbands and in our children, we can see the sacredness of the home in a way that will allow us to be happy 
with normal lives. Because we spend all day ingesting economic media designed to make us unhappy with normal lives so that we will buy things and increase the $17,000 to something higher. So let me just conclude with this quote from Chesterton. This is from, oh no, that's not it. This is from an essay entitled The Poetry of the Home by, by G.K. Chesterton. This is what he says. Now the Victorians were people who had lost the sense of the sacredness of the home. I think you could put in Americans for Victorians. Let's just, well, let's just do that. Now the Americans were people who had lost the sense of the sacredness of the home. They still believed in the respectability of the home, but that is only another way of saying they wanted to be respected by other people for reverencing what they did not reverence. The most essential educational product is imagination. For imagination will teach people how to live a quiet and humdrum life. The way to make people content is to make them creative, not to make them barren. It is imagination that keeps people quiet. And by quiet there, he meant happy in a quiet, normal life. On the other hand, dull people are always easily bored and complain for excitement. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that we, you would help us be a people who not only reverence the home publicly, but feel its sacredness deep within our spiritual conscience. We pray that we would have a thorough understanding of the gospel so that we would see that the risen Christ has made all things sacred. And by calling the wife his bride and making the family the only human picture of heaven, he has made so sacred the home that it should be the only rightful place, as the Bible says, for sex and for the procreation of children and for the deepest love companionship of the complementary genders that he has made. And we pray that as we would see it as sacred, we would dignify it. And as we live in its dignity, we would experience its blessedness. And that from that blessedness, we would experience a complete and more reliable happiness. Come, Holy Spirit, and help your church live out this calling in Christ's name.